0: We are continuing a uh, sermon series that we started last week in the book of Exodus. Uh, And remember, we said last week that one of the great uh, beauties of Exodus, and one of the reasons that we're spending this extended time in Exodus this year, is because from the point of view of the authors of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, uh, the Exodus story is our story. It's not just the story of how God saved some people back then from slavery, but it's the story of God's redeeming work in us here and now freeing us from captivity to sin, leading us through the wilderness journey of life in this world, ultimately leading us home to our true inheritance in him. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at Exodus two, and I'll be reading Exodus chapter two, verses one through 15. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word given to us in love, and every word of it is true. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would speak your word to us. Lord, that you would uh, speak your gospel, uh, your good news to us through this portion of your scriptures. Lord, we thank you that even when life seems darkest, as it was for the Hebrews in these days, when they were enslaved in Egypt, when their male children uh, were born under a command of death, that even in that darkness, you bring hope and life and redemption. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, shine your hope of redemption into the darkness of our days. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All of the gospel accounts uh, in the New Testament begin after the birth of Jesus. They begin not with his work, but with the work of John the Baptist. Uh, the one who goes before Jesus announcing his work. And in all of the Gospels, John the Baptist's work is to point to Jesus uh, and to help frame Jesus's mission, to help the people understand and later readers to understand who Jesus was and what he was sent to do in the world. This is how uh, that work is described in Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist or Luke quotes uh, the words of Isaiah in Isaiah forty to describe John. This is what he says. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. When Luke is trying to describe what John's doing, he uses Exodus language. He uses language from Isaiah, where Isaiah is pointing to the need of Israel for a new Exodus from their slavery in Babylon. The idea is that God will lead them out and he'll make a path through the desert for them to come from the place of their slavery and exile and back into their inheritance. And yet uh, this passage where John is described in this way comes after the people have already come from Babylon back to their land. And so this is Luke's way of saying that what Jesus comes to do is to lead a true and better exodus. That even though his people are no longer literally slaves in Egypt or in Babylon, even though they're back in their land, that they are living under a type of slavery that all of us in the world our condition as human beings is that we are born into and live under a type of destructive slavery. Slavery to to sin and death in this present evil age. Right? If you ask what's wrong with this world, though we could list a list of of what's wrong, we could ask, you know, is, is what's wrong primarily social or political or economic or moral? Right When we try to answer what's wrong with the world, we could say, yes, all of those things are wrong with the world, but they are symptoms of a deeper problem. That whether we know it or not, every single one of us is born into this world under the tyranny of sin and death. That though we long to be free, that though we long to live full and abundant lives, life under this kind of slavery. Remember, life for the Egyptians under Pharaoh was a life of both slavery and death. They were bound to obey him and they were under, their lives were, were under threat. And that sin in this world puts each of us into that same place where though we would be free, we're slaves. Slaves to addiction, slave, slaves to our ideologies, slaves to our idolatries, we're slaves. And each one of us lives our life under the threat of death. And so the salvation that we need isn't simply a salvation from moral problems or political problems or cultural problems. It's salvation from slavery to sin and death. And what we begin to see in this passage is the amazing surprise of how God saves, that God's Salvation from this slavery that we all need comes in a way that is utterly confounding, utterly surprising, and utterly joyful. Let's look at these first 10 verses at how God's salvation comes in a surprising way. That God's salvation comes in a position of vulnerability and weakness. God's salvation comes through a baby put in a basket and sent down a crocodile-infested river, the Nile. His salvation is born and comes right under Pharaoh's nose, right into his own palace. God's salvation doesn't come through power or might or wealth. It comes from the bottom up in this surprising, vulnerable, and weak vessel. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Right, So that none of us could say that it was my power, my might, my wisdom that brought my salvation or that brought the improvement of the world. But it came through the foolish and the weak and the frail and the small in the world's eyes. You know, if you had asked uh, the average person living in this era, roughly the 1200s BC, who the most powerful man in the world was, they likely would have said Pharaoh. That Pharaoh was uh, the unquestioned divine leader, supposedly divine leader, of the most powerful nation in the known world at the time. And this one, this this most powerful man in the world, had decreed that the Hebrews should be their slaves in Egypt and that all male Hebrew children should be immediately put to death on their birth in order... To execute a genocide and to snuff out the Hebrew people. And yet, and yet, despite the command of the most powerful person in the world, God brings his salvation. Look in verse three. I love the way that the author tells this story. When his mother could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket. In this word for basket, Uh, the Hebrew word basket here is literally the same word that's translated ark uh, in the story of Noah and the ark, right? This is the same word that was used to describe that vessel into which God planted the hope of the world, Noah and his family and two of every living creature. God's plan for the new creation that would come through the waters of his judgment and bring new life into the world. What, what the author is drawing our attention to is in the same way that God placed his hope in that ark then for the salvation of the world. So now in miniature, his hope for the world is being placed in this ark, this basket. And as if that wasn't direct enough, and these are, that's actually the only two places in the entire Bible where that Hebrew word is used. Then we're told that the basket was lined with bitumen and pitch, a kind of sticky, tar-like substance. That's the same thing that God instructed Noah to line the inside of the ark with to make sure that it was watertight, that it would be safe through the flood and through his judgment. And so what the author is trying to draw our attention to is that right there, in that basket, in the form of this A baby just a few months old, this uh, baby born into slavery, this baby born uh, under the judgment of death, told that he needed to be put to death. Then this little fragile life placed in a basket and then sent out with no protection onto the waters of the Nile, that right there in that basket is God's plan for saving his people. And of course, as we look at this, the story of the, of the Bible, it's not just his plan for bringing his people out of Egypt, right? In that basket is his covenant, right? It's through Moses that he'll bring his people out of, Israel, out of Egypt. It's through Moses that he'll make his covenant with his people. Ultimately, it's through that covenant people that he'll bring his Redeemer, Jesus, into the world. It's through that Redeemer, Jesus, that we're told that God will bring his new heavens and new earth into the entire world. So it's this mind-blowing picture where all of God's salvation is as small as a baby, as vulnerable as a baby on a river, abandoned and without anyone to look over him, that it's that small and yet as wide and as broad as the entire world, as long as eternity, his entire salvation, right there in the basket. The hope of the world, friends, the story, the true story of the whole world was being written and planned and working its way out, not in the halls of Egyptian power, but there in that basket with that little baby. Not in the will and whim of the most powerful person in the world, but in the fragility and the weakness of the baby. You know, uh, it is it is human nature uh, for us to look at power as the solution to our problems, right? It's it's part of the human nature to look uh, at the acquisition of power to be that thing that is going to solve our problems. It's human nature to tell the story of history is basically the story of people in power, the leaders and kings of nations and how they uh, executed their empires, how they rose to power, how they fell from power. And yet, the story of the Bible tells us that if your eyes are in the throne rooms of this world, you will miss the story of history. If you are preoccupied with the halls of power, you will miss where the real action is, which is in places like this little basket, where hope is smuggled into this world under the nose of Pharaoh. Friends, this is, I believe, crucial for us to think about today, right? We are in uh, the middle of an election season, an election season, which increasingly, uh, it seems like elections these days have no beginning and they have no end, right? It feels like we've always been uh, in an election season, but it's heating up, right, as we near November. In its human nature to be preoccupied with what's happening as two men vie for the position that is often now described as the position of the most powerful person in the world. Perhaps with some hubris, we think of it as such. But it's important for us in this moment to remember that our hope is not in power, that our hope is not who sits on the throne, our hope is not who occupies. Uh, seats of power in this world. But our hope is in what God's doing behind the scenes and beneath the surface. Right, friends, we don't need to obsess. Obsess over the world's stories of who's vying for power, who's in power, who's losing power, who's gaining power. Because what we know is that the hope of the world comes in the back door. That the hope of the world comes in another way. That while we ought certainly to be paying attention, right? Secular politics matters because people matter, right? Because decisions matter, because cities and states and nations, they matter. But they don't matter in the eternal ultimate sense. They don't matter in the redemptive sense. Because friends, while the whole world had their eyes fixed on an Egyptian palace, where the most powerful man in the world was supposed to live, hope snuck in the back door through a basket. And while the whole world had their eyes fixed on Rome where Caesar ruled, the entire known world, hope snuck in through a baby born in a Bethlehem manger, born into poverty. The hope of the world wasn't found uh, in the halls of Caesar's power. But the hope of the world ultimately found itself nailed to one of Caesar's crosses. Like so many others on the underside of Caesar's power experienced. Hope snuck in through a basket. Hope was born into a manger. And friends, in this moment, while the eyes of the entire world are fixed on who will be ruling from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in a few months, we need to remember that the hope of the world sneaks in another way. That the hope of the world sneaks in through those who bear the name of Jesus. Right? That the church is the ark of God. That it's in God's church that he's invested his great hope. That, God, that it's the weak and frail and vulnerable church armed with nothing more than a proclamation of good news. That salvation is available to sinners, that good news is available to the poor, right? It's through that body, through that little ark, that vulnerable community, that hope comes into our world. Because hope is found in no other place than in the name of Jesus. In the local church in which he dwells is God's plan A. It's his hope for the entire world. Right It's not that the church is God's hope if, you know, uh, if, if the election happens to go the wrong way or the right way, depending on how you view it. Right? That the church is his plan A, his non-negotiable plan for the entire world. And friends, uh, this is what concerns me in this moment, is that we, uh, in this time of increasing polarization, where our eyes and our attention are drifting towards one extreme or to another, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and that we would keep our hope fixed on his church as the hope of the world. While it matters who wins an election, what matters to me most in this moment is the unity and love and peace of the church right what matters to me most in this moment if i can speak frankly is the unity of our church right you know you might say dave you're the pastor uh, you're supposed to care most about the church but friends believe me that this the story of 2020 will either be the story of how the political divisions of our nation place too great a strain on our church fellowship In words were said, things were spoken, judgments cast that we never were able to heal from. Or the story will be that as the world was being torn apart and polarized, the unity of our church not only survived, but thrived and flourished in the midst of it. It could be the moment where we actually learn to love one another across differences of belief, across differences of political Uh, persuasion, across differences of social and cultural groupings, where we learned a deeper and more profound unity. Friends, it was not through the halls of power or political elections that Jesus said his message would come to be known. You know what he says in the Gospel of John? He says that the world will know that we are his disciples if we get our way in an election. Oh, wait, no, Is that that's not it. The world will know that we're his disciples if we love one another. If we love one another, God has given, Jesus has given the entire world the right to judge the, the truth and validity of the gospel on the character and quality of the church's loving union. In fact, he prayed his final prayer in John 17 as he looked to the cross was that the church would be one as he and the Father are one that we would reflect the unity of God to the world. I was telling uh, Haley earlier this week, we were talking, and I said, you know what, I think if you had asked me at the beginning of 2020 what my absolute favorite thing about our church is, I would have said that my favorite thing about our church is our diversity that it was the most diverse church I've ever been a part of. We're diverse culturally and socially. We're diverse economically and politically. We're we're just a a diverse mosaic of God's people coming together to find unity in Christ. That was before 2020. If you were to ask me uh, after 2020 or right now, what causes me the most concern about our church's life? It'd be our diversity. It'd be the fact that we do have in this body, more so than any church I've ever been a part of. I know, I know probably not in the grand scheme of things. I'm sure there's uh, bodies that are more diverse. But from my experience, this group has the most diverse backgrounds, the most diverse life experiences, the most uh, diverse political leanings of any church I've ever been a part of. And in a world that's arrayed to pull us apart and maximize those differences, it causes me some concern. I pray regularly that God would help us to love the unity that we have in Jesus more than we love all of those other things, that what unites us in Christ might be more deep and more precious to us than anything that could divide us. And friends, our young fellowship seems so weak and vulnerable in this moment. Our little church seems so weak and vulnerable compared to the forces and powers of this world. And so it's good news. We are no more vulnerable than a three-month-old baby in a hastily waterproofed basket thrown onto the Nile River, drifting into Pharaoh's house, and picked out of the water by the providence of God. That God doesn't despise the vulnerable and the weak, but that's precisely where his saving power comes. And so, from this story of the surprising nature of God's redemption, the surprising nature of God's salvation, we look at another story, a story of the utterly predictable and tragic results when we try to take salvation into our own hands. Right? If God's salvation is utterly and entirely surprising, the results when we try to pursue salvation under our own schemes, and our own strength, and our own wisdom. It's entirely predictable. It's a story that is as old, uh, in many ways, as time itself. And so as Moses' story goes, he's uh, brought out of the river. He's brought into first, you know, Pharaoh's daughter sees him, and then Moses' sister arranges for him to be raised by Moses' mother. He gets returned to his home, but then at some point, As he grows, he goes back into Pharaoh's house. It was normal for a midwife to raise a child, especially in royal houses. And then at some point in reaching adulthood, the child would go to be a part uh, of his birth house. And so Moses, uh, at this point, has two cultural identities. Later on in this chapter, uh, he's going to be referred to as an Egyptian. that He appears as an Egyptian when he meets his wife, Zipporah. But uh, at this point, uh, he is identified as a Hebrew when he comes uh, walking around and sees an Egyptian master abusing a Hebrew. Verse 12 tells us that Moses, the young man, looks this way and that, and seeing nobody, strikes down the Egyptian and hides his body in the sand. Moses, knowing himself to be a member of the Hebrew people, sees a Hebrew slave abused. By an Egyptian master. Infilled, we imagine, with righteous indignation, with righteous anger, he takes matters into his own hands and he kills the Egyptian and he hides him. Now, Moses' anger is a justified anger, right? It is, a, it is a righteous anger. He's seen a real injustice. And yet the way that he goes about seeking to remedy this injustice is both foolish and sinful, right? It's foolish because, uh, I mean, what happens if you're living under an unjust system, right? You're living under a Pharaoh who's decreed that your people should be slaves and further decreed that your children should be killed. And then you see one person who's probably, uh, you know, works for somebody who works for somebody who works for somebody. Uh, that's under Pharaoh, right? He's way down the line. You see him following through on this unjust system and you kill him. It's foolish because it doesn't solve anything, right? It's a, it's a misfocused anger on one small piece of this much larger slavery. And so it's foolish. Moses kills him. It's also sinful because as we're going to find out later in, in, uh, in Exodus, murder uh, is against God's will. And we see it as futile because, you know, now in in God's plan, everything happens in his timing. But from a human standpoint, Moses's actions here delay the exodus by 40 years. If you were just to look at it from a human perspective, Pharaoh gets mad at Moses. Moses has to flee Egypt. Moses goes into the wilderness before he comes back, called by God. And so Moses forfeits a position of power where we can speculate he might have had some influence. Uh, to affect redemption but we don't know that but from a strictly from a human perspective moses goes on this entire 40 year journey his own exodus and return that happens as a result of this sinful and foolish decision that he made in a fit of anger in a fit of righteous anger against injustice Brothers and sisters, we are never more dangerous than when we are righteously angry. I'll speak for myself. Uh, I am never more dangerous. I am never a greater threat to my relationships or the people in my life than when I'm certain that I'm right and I see somebody as, as opposing me in my rightness. Right? Moses believed himself to be absolutely right He had rendered judgment on this person, and he believes himself to be 100% right, this person to be 100% wrong. And so he believed himself to be justified in whatever he chose to do. This attitude of self-righteousness, of righteous anger, kills. It kills here in Moses' life. Because he believes in the heat of this moment that the ends justify the means. Right, that, that getting even, uh, affecting some small measure of justice, that the ends justify the means. And yet, in Christ, the ends never justify the means. In Christ, we are called to not only pursue justice, but to pursue justice and under just means. We're not only to pursue reconciliation and unity, but to do it in a posture of humility and love and graciousness. We are not permitted to take up uh, the weapons of the enemy, weapons of hatred and violence and injustice and murder. Because righteous anger often does leave to murder. And there is a lot of righteous anger turned murderous these days. Now, Hopefully, none of you are out there actually murdering one another. Although, sadly, we have seen that happening, right? We have, seen, uh, we have seen literal murder play out along ideological lines between people who are absolutely committed to the justice of their cause, who believe themselves to be in the right. But if you peel the onion a little bit more, and we remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, What does Jesus say? He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, right? I say to you, anyone who harbors hatred in his heart is guilty of murder, right? He goes on to say, I say to you, anyone who has said in his heart, raka, which which, uh, literally, we don't have an exact translation, but it means fool. Anyone who harbors resentment and looks down on his neighbor and calls them a fool is guilty of the same, it grows from the same murderous impulse in the heart. And so contempt, judgment, rendering somebody a fool is a symptom of the same disease as murder. And if contempt in self-righteousness is equivalent to murder, then brothers and sisters, right now, we are living through a season of mass murder. Uh, Social media is a a murder scene. If we really believe that looking down on one another with contempt and labeling one another as fools is the same as murder, then there is a lot of murder that we have justified. Even in Christian circles, we have believed that the ends can justify any means. That winning the argument matters more than loving our neighbors. That the state of the case matters more than the state of our hearts and of our neighbors' hearts. And this is entirely possible on all sides of of our current political debates and cultural and social debates. It's entirely possible for all of us to treat one another with contempt, is viewing each other as not just holding differences of opinion, but of being so wrong and morally flawed that we aren't even worthy of discussion, that it's not even worthy of conversation. And though it's possible on all sides, I believe, and I've seen it uh, perhaps most starkly, and maybe even if I'm honest, most in my own heart, when it comes to, to, to seeing an area that we want to see change in society, in desiring progress in that area right when we believe that we really have seen something that's unjust something that's unrighteous it's so easy for us to, be- to begin to believe and to yield to the temptation to believe that the ends justify the means and so instead of entering into real dialogue and to real conversations we give in to the temptation and believe that if somebody doesn't use the words that we pr- prefer to use, if somebody doesn't diagnose all of the problems in exactly the same way that you, would, that you or I would, would diagnose them, that, that there's some inherent moral flaw, that they're inherently prejudiced or racist. They're, they're too beyond the hope of change to even uh, want to enter into a dialogue about how we might work together to solve what ails us. As a people, if we're gonna come together through this, if we're going to be a force for real redemptive change in this world, it's gonna take us recognizing that we must do the work of Christ in the way of Christ. Do we have to adopt a posture of humility and service and love and understanding and listening, even to those with whom we believe we disagree? if we're going to seek unity, if we're gonna have any hope of unity and actually talking about, so, about uh, the social and political issues of our day, friends, we are gonna to have to bathe our conversations in grace. We are gonna to have to have so much grace for one another that everyone knows that they're free, that they're free to enter into conversations, uh, maybe not having all the answers, maybe worried about saying the wrong things, we're gonna to have to saturate our relationships with grace and mercy. If we are gonna be known by our love for one another, we're gonna to have to show our love for one another in the humble posture that we take with one another in talking about hard things. And friends, that extends to social media. Right? I'm, not, I'm not just talking about being gracious and humble with one another when you're looking somebody in the eyes. But I'm talking about even when they're, maybe even especially, when they are an abstraction off somewhere else and you're pounding away at a keyboard. Right, If you're active on social media, whichever one it is, I, don't, I can't keep up anymore, but whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, I'm showing my age. When you engage on social media, let me encourage you to view the primary audience to what you write as your brothers and sisters in this church. To think not about abstract people with with whom you want to win an argument, but brothers and sisters whom you have taken vows to love. And the world is listening in to our conversations. The world is looking to see in this moment how Christians love one another. Are we looking at one another to exact our pound of flesh? Are we looking at one another as enemies to be conquered? Are we looking at one another as people in the wrong who are there to be, to be shamed and exposed? Or are they looking at us as people who are so committed to one another, so committed to the cross, so committed to love and grace, that we can enter into conversations that the world doesn't have a clue how to have with one another? In a posture of mutual service and upbuilding in love. I was reading uh, earlier this week a, a lecture uh, by Leslie Newbegin. Newbigin, uh, Newbigin um, I've shared with you before, hero of mine. He was a missionary He was an English uh, missionary who became Bishop of Madras uh, in India. And in in '87, he was back in the U.K, uh, but he was leading a talk. He was giving a talk uh, to a missions organization, to a a group of churches and mission from around the world and indigenous pastors. And they were talking about uh, the difficult problem that existed after colonialism uh, in in that world, right? So he was uh, plagued with thoughts about how the British colonial work in India had been both the way that the gospel was uh, introduced and furthered, and in the way that caused so much harm and injustice to the Indian people. And in talking about how, uh, when there was this, this, this world, not just in India, but in other places too, where there had been real oppression and real victims, how they could work together towards hope. And he actually says, he says, I understand Uh, the impulse that wants to turn, uh, he calls it uh, to turn to Marxism, or basically to turn to a view of the world where oppressors and the oppressed are always locked in battle with one another. In fact, interestingly, he says that both capitalism, uh, of the sort that led the English to do their uh, colonial work in India, that both capitalism and Marxism grow out of the same 19th century European apostasy. So the abandonment of the gospel. But then listen to this. This is what he says. And I think this is so good for us. Newbegin says, The proposal to understand all human affairs in terms of a classification of human beings as oppressors and oppressed And the identification of the oppressed as the bearers of meaning and hope for history is an obvious carryover from Marxism. And then listen to this, this is so good. We are all in some measure, both oppressors and oppressed, right? Is there anything more clear in Moses's story of murder, right? He was uh, at the same time seeking justice as the member of an oppressed group, but in a moment of rage, turned the tables and became Uh, the perpetrator of violence against another. Newbegin says, The gospel, the good news with which we are charged, is that the reign of God present in Jesus has brought us all together under judgment and has in the same act brought us all together under blessing. In the presence of the cross, there are no innocent parties. In its presence, we know that we are altogether guilty and yet altogether forgiven, loved, and set free. The good news, Newbegin goes on, is that we are liberated. And it is out of that actually given liberation, our exodus that we've experienced in Christ, that our actions for justice and mercy flow. Let justice and mercy flow, brothers and sisters. Let justice and mercy flow through Jesus to us as his reconciled bride, the church, and then out from us into a hurting world. Salvation, when we take it into our own wisdom and our own strength, when we give in to our own self-righteousness, is bound to end in tragedy. I'm just going to read these last verses. We're short on time. But this is so good. Listen to the final verses of Exodus 2, starting in verse 23. During those many days, this is while Moses is leaving Egypt. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. So the most powerful man in the world dies. Another pharaoh takes his place. We're never given either one of their names. It's just a new actor stepping into the same role and playing the same role. So the king of Egypt dies, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Thus far in the book of Exodus, all of the action has been done by human beings. God is there in his providence organizing things, but God enters into the story as an active character at this point. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knew. God responds to the prayers of his people from the midst of their darkness. Friends, when we take vengeance into our own hands, when we take our agenda under our own wisdom, things are definitely going to go wrong. But when we trust that salvation comes from a God who hears our cries, who sees through our confusion and sees us in our estate, and who knows us inside and out, who knows our dreams, who knows our fears, who knows our concerns, he can act and he will act through Christ to bring his salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's so hard to really believe that you do see us and that you hear our prayers and that you know our lives. It's so hard to believe that our salvation is truly wrapped up, not in our own actions, but in yours. Not in our own wisdom, but in yours. Not in our own weakness, but in your strength. And so Lord Jesus, help us to remember and to live in the surprising reversal of your salvation and to keep our eyes fixed on the world's only savior. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at christchurchintown.org.